0: Well, good morning, and oh, again, welcome to you. Uh, especially for those of you gathered, uh, 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 you're hearty this morning. You're making uh, the heart of a Canadian very proud as you uh, sit there under blankets. And for those of you who are uh, joining us from the warmth and the comfort of your own home, um, we're grateful, a little jealous, but grateful um, that you're with us this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Revelation chapter uh, 13? Uh, We're going to read chapters 13 and 14 this morning, and we're going to talk about the call for endurance, the call for endurance, and that's a phrase that you'll see in both of these chapters, so I'm going to read them together, and, and as you'll see, there's plenty of us. Uh, Plenty in here for us to think about and wrestle with uh, when it comes to the symbolism in these chapters. But there's also this powerful call uh, for endurance in the midst of it. So Revelation 13 and verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have had a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth was marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to cap- captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call For the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its appearance and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, but the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold... No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second angel, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of God. So it's quite a passage, It's uh, but it's a passage which is fundamentally calling for Christian endurance. That's what the passage is doing. Both of these uh, two chapters have exactly the same punchline right in the middle, right? What they do is they present us with images that relate to the persecution of the church and then sandwiched right in the middle of both chapters comes the exact same comment, here is a call for the... It, Endurance, or the endurance and faith of the saints, chapter thirteen, verse ten; chapter fourteen, verse verse twelve. Pardon me. I'm just going to. And um, that helps us a lot because it's it's like okay, there's a lot of crazy, um, wild symbolism here, but but John's intention in these chapters is to call for persevering faith, like. We know that's what the writers trying to do. We we know that God. This is why God has put this scripture in. So even at times when we might uh, find the imagery puzzling, uh, we know that that's the meaning. The application is clear, even if sometimes the symbols are are more difficult. And 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 the way that John gets it, the way that the vision works is is it presents to us the story of Christian persecution told twice from two very different perspectives. Okay, so so we are getting the story of the church's troubles and opposition's, opposition from two perspectives. In chapter 13, we get the persecution of the church from earth's perspective. And then in chapter 14, you get the persecution of the church from heaven's perspective. And and the the contrast helps us see how and why the church needs to endure. And so in chapter 13, what happens is a terrifying beast comes out of the sea. Leopard, bear, lion, horns, all of that stuff. A terrifying beast comes out of the sea blaspheming God and making war on God's people. And then another beast comes out of the land urging and manipulating people to worship the sea beast right so so you've got a sea beast and a land beast and the land beast is kind of telling people to to worship and we'll come to what that that means in a moment but that's the picture of chapter 13 and what happens is most people worship the beast the sea beast and receive its mark and its name and they're allowed to trade But some people refuse to worship the beast and receive its mark and either get conquered or captured. And that's the people of God. In other words, empires and powers will insist on being worshipped. Faithful Christians will say, no, we are not worshipping you. We worship the Lord. And as a result, they will get killed or excluded from social and economic life. And then he says, this is a call for endurance, right? It is. Imperial power gangs up with, I think, religious power and says, you must do this. And the faithful Christian says, we are not worshiping you. And as a result, they get killed or captured. And that means that the church has to endure. That is chapter 13. It's a call for endurance by looking at the persecution of the church from the perspective of of the earth. And then, in chapter 14, we get the perspective of the same events, but from heaven's perspective. And that is, we are now looking at, you know, we're, we're now looking at what it looks like at the ground, we're looking at, it not, not as it is up from the ground, but we're looking at it from God's perspective, like from God's throne room, which is that 144,000 people are redeemed from the earth. 144,000 is just this massive multitude. You know, it's just this huge number redeemed from the earth. And they are singing and they are rejoicing and they are pure and holy and blameless. And their foreheads, on their foreheads they don't have the mark of the beast on it. They have the name of the Father and the name of the Lamb on it. And, and, and what we see as we, if you like, look at things from earth's perspective and then look at things from heaven's perspective, is a totally different view of the persecution of the church. Namely, that the people of God have, having been persecuted, have now been exalted, if you like, have been enthroned in heaven, and are now in a state of blessing and fullness and purity and abundance and rejoicing that people on earth have no idea about. And we see the ultimate collapse and futility and emptiness and judgment of the beast and of its worshipers. And we see the harvest of the earth, the, the reaping, if you like, of the grain and of the grapes. And at long last, the gathering in of God's harvest, which I think refers to the people of God up into heaven. And, and that again, John says, is a call for endurance. Hang in there. In other words, from earth's perspective, Faithful Christians are captured, conquered, and killed, and that's why endurance is necessary. But from heaven's perspective, faithful Christians are redeemed, rested, and reaped, and that's why endurance is possible. Chapter 13 says this is why you must endure and chapter 14 says, this is why you can endure. Because look at the hope, look at the future, look at the state of blessing to which you go as and when you face this terrible attack in life on earth. It is a call for endurance. Hang in there. It is worth it. So that's, if you like, the big picture of these two chapters. Chapter 13 looks at things from earth's perspective and says the church gets persecuted, they get captured, conquered, and killed. Chapter 14 says, we'll now look at the same events from heaven's perspective and these same people, the Christians who have been faithful unto death, they have been redeemed, they have been given rest, and they have been reaped as in a huge harvest that has been taken up to heaven. But before we start applying that I suppose into our day, it's worth backtracking a moment and, and looking at some of the symbols and how they work because I'm assuming a, a lot in the, in, what, in the way I've summarized it here. So let's just look at some of the symbols and what they mean. And of course, the big one to tackle here is the beast, the beast that comes up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And we may think, well, you know, wow, what on earth is, is, is this? What on earth is going on there? But actually, when you read this imagery here, it takes you back. If you know your Old Testament well, it takes you back to the book of Daniel. Because in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees four beasts in sequence, which get defeated by the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. That's the plot of Daniel chapter 7. And those four beasts in Daniel 7 are essentially the four beasts you see combined in Revelation 13. Dan- Daniel says, I saw four beasts. The first was a lion. That's, that's Babylon in Daniel's day. The second is a bear. That's Persia. The third is a leopard with four heads, which is, is Greece. Because the Greek empire after Alexander the Great died divided into four. And the fourth beast is a terrifying creature with ten horns and iron teeth. And that represents Rome. So the beast that we're seeing in Revelation 13 is drawn from a vision in the Old Testament in which Daniel predicts four empires that are going to come and attack the people of God, the people of Israel, the Babylonian. Persian, Greek, and Roman. And then Daniel says, but even though all of those empires will come and attack the people of God, God will establish his kingdom, which will never pass away and never be destroyed. And John now, hundreds of years later, is taking those images and applying them to his, his own day and saying, what we have now is, is, is a worldly empire that is a, a horrible fusion of all the other world, uh, world empires. Right, It's got seven heads and ten horns. The sea beast is the amalgamation of all the pagan empires that threaten God's people. And in the first century, in John's day, that's Rome. In our day, it's not Rome. That kind of thing still happens, as we'll see. But in John's day, they would say, okay, this is the Roman Empire. This is the full might of the pagan empire trying to attack and crush the church. So we meet the beast out of the sea. And I think that's talking about Rome in John's day. And then we meet the beast out of the land. And the beast out of the land is a beast who speaks and works miracles on behalf of the sea beast. And this might might either be a Jewish or a pagan beast, but it represents religious power in support of imperial power. So the sea beast is the power of empire, right? People trying to kill the church. And the land beast represents religious power who then backs up, lines up with with the imperial power to say, you should worship, you should pay homage to the imperial power. So we have religion and empire coming together in a horrible fusion that attacks the church. Eventually we're told that the sea beast has a mark and a number. The number is 666. Now this final verse of chapter 13 is the most famous probably in the whole of the book and Christians have speculated for the last 2,000 years over who or what this might be. Now, I think a case can be made that in John's day, the 666 uh, might be a reference to Nero, the emperor. I, I, I think there's a, a case that can be made for that, but we don't have time to go into all of that here. If you come to the Revelation Forum tonight, uh, we can maybe talk about it then. Uh, but, but this may refer to the emperor Nero, who at this time is, is killing the church. And if it is indeed Nero, if anything, I think he really serves as an archetype of any and all leaders and systems opposed to in a raid against the Lord Jesus Christ and his church throughout history. And 666 is also a parody, you have to see. The number of perfection, not least for John, would be, we assume, 777. And for John, there is little doubt. Nero and the system that he represented and embodied was a parody of the real thing. One short of the right number three times over. In other words, Jesus was the reality. Nero was just a dangerous, blasphemous copy. But at the end of it all, what you have is an alliance between a religious land beast and an imperial empire um, sea beast. And remember in the book of Acts... Most of the opposition to the church comes through a combination of the Roman Empire and religious people. In the context of the first century, it was the Jewish religious establishment. Judaism and the Roman Empire come together in the context of the book of Acts and the gospels, of course, at times to attack the church. And I think what might be happening here is that image is then coloring this fusion together of two powers. And that's likely what this refers to. But you may have noticed that that kind of phenomenon has not died out. Right? Alliances between religious and state power have always occurred. And alliances between religious and state power that attack and persecute the church, true church have, have definitely always occurred. And actually a large number of martyrs in church history have been killed because not just the state came for them, and not just the religious group came for them, but a religious alignment with the state came to attack them. And that's often what happens when Christians are dying for their faith, and always has been and still is today. That's what you have with Islam. Not all strains of Islam at all. But with Wahhabist Islam, that's what you have. That's what I, 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 you have, I think, with white supremacy. It's, it, I think it's an alignment, often religious rationalization to support power grab by empire. I think that's what you have with fascism where religious arguments are often used to undergird an evil state power so it's not just john's day i I think john's talking about rome and john's talking about the romans collaborating with the jewish religious establishment at the time to attack the church but i think that that principle of religious and state power coming together is something that has often happened over and over and over again we're not free of it at all even in our own day. It's not just the first century. It it still happens. And it's a call for the endurance of the saints. That's chapter 13 and all the symbols. Chapter 14, the symbolism is a bit more straightforward, I think. 144,000 redeemed people playing harps. I think that pretty clearly refers to the multitude of the redeemed, right? People who have died in faith. Christians, you, in time, me. And we tried to show a few weeks ago that 144,000 refers to the multitude of the redeemed. And the the harvest of the earth, whereby Jesus takes a a scythe and, and reaps ripe grain with it, well, that's an image that Jesus himself uses when he's teaching, isn't it? The idea that history is in in a sense like a harvest and you have wheat and you have weeds and the two grow together. And Jesus said, no, no, don't separate them now. Wait until the harvest and then put the scythe in and we'll separate them. So in a sense, the, the harvest of the earth, I think, is the harvest of judgment. And the wheat, if you like, represents believers. And so the harvest picture is a picture of Jesus coming in with his end-time sickle to reap the earth and take all of the ripe wheat, the people of God, the faithful, to be with him in glory. And from my judgment, the grape harvest actually refers to the same thing, that the blood of the martyrs is effectively poured into his winepress and poured out on the world in in chapter 16. Jesus' body, the church, is represented by grain And by grapes, bread and wine. And I think this is talking about the people of God being harvested, being reaped, being caught up to heaven with him. So this is a harvest, not and not a rapture. Right? This isn't talking about an event that, that happens in the middle of history where Christians disappear all of a sudden. This is talking about the idea that, is, that God is going to, at the end, he's going to bring his sickle through the world and remove, if you like, at that point, separate sheep and goats, wheat and weeds, and so on. And this actually, when a Christian dies, they are caught up to heaven's throne to celebrate Jesus with the song of the redeemed, to be pure and blameless and to be untainted by any mark of the beast and instead to have the name of the Lord on their foreheads. So that's the symbolism, if you like, of chapters 13 and 14. And the reason why we can endure through the earthly perspective, chapter 13, is because we also have the heavenly perspective of chapter 14. That's how these two chapters work together. Chapter 13 says, you're a Christian, great. Guess what? You're going to get conquered, captured, and killed. And then chapter 14 says, yes, but the reason why you will be able to withstand that is because we know also about the redemption and the rest and the reaping of the church. Something in the region of 70 million Christians have been martyred in human history. And we need to be reminded of that because it's so unfamiliar to to many of us in our daily experience. 70 million Christians, about 55 million of those were killed by the state, and about 45 million of them were killed in the last century alone. So this isn't talking about something that's all in the ancient past. Things have been hotting up. And an awful lot of the, this uh, that, of course, was in the last century in communist Russia and Mao's China and, and in other similar instances that took place perhaps in smaller nations where fewer people died. But the same kind of principle as a, is at work where the state, often in the name of establishing state religion or the lack of it, comes to wipe out the church. And millions of people die. And when that happens, it's described in Revelation 13 terms. Right? This is like an alliance between the beast of the empire and the beast of religion coming to strike the church and killing, capturing, and conquering the church. But... We now look at it, because of what John is showing us here, and we have to look at those events of martyrdom and see them not just in Revelation 13 terms of conquest, but in Revelation 14 terms of redeeming and resting and reaping. And that heavenly perspective empowers our endurance in the earthly perspective. Right? Because you can't see this, that heavenly perspective in daily life. Right? Right? I mean, you read the news and you read about people being killed for their faith. Or even you just experience daily opposition to your your faith. I feel attacked or opposition because of my Christian faith. And you find it hard to see. And so do I. The heavenly reality of Revelation 14, all you can see is Revelation 13. And many of us, of course, see it far less than many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But we do see it. And when we do, what we are confronted with is a reality that looks very Revolu- Revelation 13e, right? And what John is saying, when this happens, my brothers and sisters, lift your eyes as well. Don't deny this reality, but lift your eyes to the Revelation 14 reality in which you can see the hope, the redemption, the rest, the the, the reaping of the people of God. And that perspective empowers endurance. One of my uh, all-time favorite movies is the Shawshank Redemption seen it a number of times what a fantastic mu- movie Uh, and this does, I'm afraid, contain a couple spoilers, so if you haven't seen it for whatever reason, uh, just close your ears, but the Shawshank Redemption is a movie in which the the main character played by Tim Robbins is is falsely convicted of murder, and he goes to prison, and he forms a deep, very touching relationship, friendship with Morgan Freeman, and he makes a huge difference to the prison uh, in a bunch of ways. He introduces music and books and education to the prison, and then at the end, sorry, he escapes through a hole, a tunnel in his cell that, that we didn't know was there because it was, it was covered by a poster. Now when you watch that movie for the first time, you don't know he's going to get out. And actually when you first watch it, it really shocks you when he, do, when it, when he does. You, d- you don't see it coming at all. Uh, you think he's going to kill himself at the end and, and that's kind of what you, you would suppose will happen. So the, the movie, until that, that moment that he gets out, which is right at the end, the movie feels very bleak. There's this hopelessness and, and despair about it. And, and the movie's pretty brutal in places. There's lots of beatings and there's sexual violence. There's murder in the story. And as you're watching it for the first time, you're thinking, where is the hope here? And you almost want to give up halfway through for that reason. And and you feel like the main character should give up as well. But of course, the, the main character knows something that we don't know because he is tunneling out behind the poster the whole way through the movie. And so he has a hope that we don't have as we're watching it. So there are beasts, if you like, the beasts beasts of the sea and the beasts from the land, the warden and the captain of the guard who are using all of their religious and state power to to beat the prisoner into submission. They're trying to destroy him. But even though they are, the hope of where he is going, the hope of the future redemption empowers his endurance so he is able to hang on and carry on and plug away and continue being faithful to, to, to what he is hoping for one, day because he knows that he's going to get out and he knows where it's going to take him. And so when we first watch the movie, it looks like Andy Dufresne is being captured, conquered and is eventually going to be killed. But when we watch it again, we read the whole plot in light of his redemption from prison. Justice for for the wicked, judgment coming on upon the beasts, if you like, and his final rest in that Mexican coastal town. And when you watch it again, you're 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 willing him to keep going, and because you know what's coming, you think it's okay, Andy. Hang in there; you will get out. And and when you do, it's going to be this lovely scene with you and Morgan Freeman on the beach at the end. You see, the perspective you have empowers endurance through t- sometimes unimaginable difficulty, because you know where it ends. And just as Andy steps out of that sewage pipe at the end of the move and he just, you know, he just raises his hand and it, 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 as, as the rain comes down, just like that, that is what John wants us to see in Revelation 14. You will be able to withstand a great deal of trouble in this world if you only know the redemption, the rest, and the reaping that is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what happens when you live with heaven's perspective. You live with endurance because you know that your hard work is going to be rewarded. You live with hope because you know that the story ends in triumph and not in defeat. And you even live with more love for those around you because you know that there's a world outside of the prison walls. And you so you use the gifts you've been given, like the, the character does in the movie to serve people and, and use the gifts you've been given as a witness to the world to come, of the world to come to those around you. Because you know that the world will not always beat us. You use what God has given to you to serve people and point them to the hope that is only found in Christ and when when all the beasts are dead and gone. In order to persevere past the beasts of chapter 13, you need the freedom and the justice and the harvest of chapter 14. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now many of us might feel like the beasts are a long way off. Right? In your daily life you may think, you know what, I'm, I'm the furthest thing away. I'm actually very privileged and, and I am too, right? I'm very privileged. I don't have beasts that are coming for me. I'm not, I'm not beaten up by prison guards or tortured or set on fire to light the way into Rome like the Christians in this generation were. Revelation 13 and 14, do they really have anything to say to me? And I think there are two answers to that as we conclude. And the first is is that there are plenty of people for whom the beasts are closer than we think. Admittedly, we are not being killed for our faith, but there are many people who are. You know, last Sunday was actually the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church, a day set aside to remember and pray for the countless numbers throughout this world who do face astonishing and relentless persecution a day in, day out for their faith in and allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And, and, and as the body of Christ, when one suffers, we suffer altogether. So when we see or hear what is happening in places like North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia or any number of places, we suffer with them as we realize this this is still happening. This is not hypothetical. This is not some distant in the past ancient history. It may not be my experience, but it's our experience as the body of Christ. And when one part suffers, we suffer together. There are plenty as well, plenty of people closer to home who do face a mixture of state and or religious pressure to get to to, uh, us to, you know, kowtow to the powers of this age to wear the right symbol. It might not be a symbol on the hand or on the forehead, but it might be on the lapel. But you might have to wear one, or you might be strongly urged to wear one, and, and you know you might not get promoted if you don't. You might be under tremendous pressure to make clear that you worship the empire's gods today, and it's going to cost you something to say no. Some of us are finding it increasingly difficult to, in our work because we refuse to worship the beast. It might not be, at this stage, the beast trying to kill people. It might simply be the beast that says, Unless you wear this or do that or say this, you're not going to really be able to succeed. And I suspect that that power is at work in more of us than we might think. And this calls for endurance, right? Not just for individuals, not just your, your, you know, your problem or your problem, but this is our issue together. We are called to endure, to overcome together, not just as isolated individuals, There might be someone near you right now who is living through this stuff in their own circumstances that you don't even know. This call for endurance in the faith of the saints, the the, the gathered body of Christ together. That's the first answer to give. The beast might be closer than we think. And the second answer to give to the question, does this have anything to say to me today, is that even though you don't yet experience the threats of chapter 13, the promises of chapter 14 are yours anyway. Even if you think, you know what, I, I can't relate to it in my experience. And praise God. And by the way, that's my story. Yeah. Periodically, people may get at you or, and, 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 and you face opposition. But, but my general experience is like, wow, I am, I am not being set on fire to light the streets of Rome. And I'm glad that I'm not being beaten up and tortured by prison guards. But even though I'm not, the promises of Revelation 14 are for me anyway. And I need them, and so do you. We need them to endure. We need them to endure in order to thrive in a fallen world in the face of sickness and grief and bereavement and stress and loneliness and employment and busyness and any number of the other challenges that you and I face. And we need those promises whether the beasts are banging at our door or not. So look at these promises and cling to them even if you feel like the beasts are a mile away from you today. Look at the promises of Scripture. You are given a name written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of life, of the Lamb who was slain. You have a song that nobody can learn except the redeemed. And you have a blessing which secures your future and empowers your endurance To the day you die. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then the Spirit says, Oh yeah, blessed indeed, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Those promises are yours, whether the beast is out to get you right now or whether you didn't even know he it was there until this morning. The promises of Christ, of redemption, of rest, of reaping are for you, and you can stand in them. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these magnificent promises. We thank you for, uh, for this in many ways strange but also very compelling vision John had to reveal to us not just the reality of 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 the persecution of the church but also of the hope that is ours and the call to endurance that is upon every one of us. We pray that you would give us uh, fiber and strength that we might that, that we might need, Lord, the the resilience that we need, the 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 courage we need to stand and to endure. We pray that you would give it to us in and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has already overcome himself and conquered exactly these kinds of enemies in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. We thank you for him. We thank you for the Spirit's work in our lives. We thank you and we love you. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.